Just as we uh, turn to the Word, I'd like to just pray uh, one more time before we we dive in. So, uh, join me. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for this chance to be together, to gather with your people, to hear from your Word, to give you praise. And I pray now that as we come to your Word that you would speak and that you would lead us to purity, that we would walk uprightly before you and pure before you. I pray that you would uh, bring about holiness in our lives, even as the result of being here together now and opening your word. We pray you do this by your power and for your own namesake and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a hyper- sexualized society. Uh, This, I think, is self-evident. I I don't think I need to try to convince you of that. Um, It's it's everywhere. And every aberration is before our faces, whether it's in TV, it's in movies, it's on the news, it's in social media, it's in advertisements, it's all around us, either reporting, reporting it, or glorying in it, or trying to convince us that we ought to glory in these aberrations. And uh, as the overall message uh, is that such perversion is to be celebrated by us, we also have an incredible amount of access uh, access points to participate in perversion. Uh, Like never before, uh, the internet has, has revolutionized access, and, and most of us carry it around in our pockets with us everywhere we go. And so uh, you have the dominant message being celebrate uh, what is perverse in this area, and we have a ton of access points to do just that and to participate in it. Um, and yet, at the same time, uh, this issue of sexual immorality has been an issue Uh, forever. It's been an issue uh, from the earliest days of sin, and it was an issue for the Thessalonians and for the Christians in Paul's day. So we we might look at something like the internet and and say, you know, this is, this is, Paul would never have had this in mind. He couldn't have even foreseen some of our struggles today. Um, but we, we can't think that we're unique in this. The call to purity is not void because we have, you know, so much more access to it. In the, in the world of the Thessalonians, who Paul is writing to, who we are uh, reading about and, and getting a glimpse at with this church, uh, in that world, cult prostitution was a normal part of worshiping some deities. Just a normal thing. It was an expected thing that men would participate in this. Um, and so that, that would have been normal. It wouldn't have been viewed as immoral to participate in that. And, and to us, that might seem crazy in some sense, but that was what was normal to them. Uh, these, these formerly pagan people now turned Christians. And in fact, even where adultery was condemned um, in this time, it was usually more the reality of 
More was the issue of if, if, if a man takes another man's wife, it's really more of, well, that woman belongs to somebody else, and therefore you shouldn't have done that. It's kind of like stealing something from somebody. You shouldn't have done it because you're taking something that belongs to another person. It wasn't that the act itself outside of marriage was, was immoral. So, uh, so, so even that understanding of adultery, is, and even though they sure condemned that, it was, a, it was still a very different understanding from what the Bible would say about adultery. And so Thessalonica, in Paul's day, as he's writing this letter, as he was there in, in Acts, um, it was also a hypersexualized pagan society where promiscuity and licentiousness was, was expected in a lot of cases. It was not viewed as wrong or immoral, but was actually expected. So this is what these Christians would have come out of and would have been forced to have a complete uh, worldview shift on this issue. And it seems that perhaps some were having trouble making the adjustment, and that's why Paul is going to address this issue. And it's really the first thing he addresses as we come to a more practical section of 1 Thessalonians 4. So we just, I say this, just, one of the things I just want to point out is that we, we should not make the mistake of thinking that our day is so much worse and, and perhaps the, you know, run the risk of thinking the Bible and Paul couldn't really understand where we are today and the struggles we have today. Because some of the things that they would have struggled with in Thessalonica seem crazy uh, to us, might seem crazy to us. Um, so this, this issue of immorality has, has spanned the centuries. And, and, and uh, it, I'm not saying all this to, to uh, make us feel better about our, our struggle or whatever, but just to say that it's always been here. Uh, it's always been an issue. It'll continue to be an issue for the church until the Lord returns. So we've come to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, Paul begins now to bring some practical instruction to the church. And so he, he begins uh, by dealing with the issue of sexual immorality, in which he exhorts them to greater purity. So this message is, um, we've been talking about a faithful church. That's been the theme we're working with here in uh, these sermons through 1 Thessalonians. And this one is about walking in purity. A faithful church is walking in Impurity. And so we're going to look at five things. We're going to move fairly quickly through them. Uh, five things that will help us as we seek to walk in purity, as you strive to walk in purity. I'll list them quickly and then we'll, we'll unpack them a little more. So the first is to never stop pursuing sexual purity. The second is to be certain, to know for sure that sexual purity is God's will for your life. Number, the third one is to engage in the battle for sexual purity. The fourth is to remember your true identity in Christ. And then the last one is to be warned, to be warned that eternity is at stake. This is a, a significant issue. So those are the things we're going to walk through. So let's start by reading the first two verses of chapter 4. So 1 Thessalonians 4. It says this, it says, Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. 
for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So these first two verses set up, I think, the second half of the book of 1 Thessalonians as Paul moves away from recounting his relationship and history with the Thessalonians to the more practical instruction. Uh, This, I think, kind of sets the tone for the the rest of these verses, that he's, the rest of the book, that he is wanting them, the Thessalonians, to pursue greater faithfulness. So he says, finally, brothers, we ask and urge you. This is a strong appeal, an exhortation. Okay, it's, it's clear in verse 2 there that he's, they've already been given instructions about these things. Uh, they're not totally in the dark. They've been given some instructions about how to please the Lord, how to live for him. And he also comments there, you'll notice, that they're already obeying to some extent. He says, as you are already doing, just as you are already doing. But he's asking them and he's exhorting them to do this more and more. To do it more and more. That is, he wants them to abound in this. And so this is where the first point I'd like us to see is that is to never stop pursuing purity. Never stop pursuing sexual impurity, sexual purity. So these instructions are reminders and are an appeal to keep going. So even a church that's doing well is told. Again, they're doing some of these things. They are pursuing the Lord. They are pursuing holiness. And yet we have Paul uh, encouraging them, exhorting them to increase in their faithfulness, to increase in the fruit that they're bearing, to finish well, to keep going. So I think that's instructive for us, um, that encouragements to keep going and corrections don't mean that you're necessarily doing everything wrong. So sometimes we can feel that way. If, if there's a correction or encouragement to, to, to greater faithfulness, we might feel like we're being told, oh, we're just we're doing everything wrong. And that's, that's, not, that's not necessarily the case. These Christians were, were doing things well. Again, the tone of this letter is very positive between Paul and the Thessalonians. And even here as he's beginning this exhortation, he's saying you're doing a lot of these things well, but more and more increase in this, abound in these things. And so we... Uh, Ought not to think that uh, when we you know, are confronted by the text or in a sermon or by a friend or somebody who, who is trying to exhort us to greater faithfulness in an area, that doesn't necessarily mean everything we're doing in that area is wrong or we've done nothing right or anything like that. Likewise, though, it also shows that we ought not to just rest feeling, well, we've arrived. We're faithful in this area. We're doing well. So we'll just, we, we've, we've made it in this particular area, whatever the area might be. There's always going to be room for improvement and need to be on guard this side of eternity. And so as as I said, I think these verses govern the rest of what we're going to read in 1 Thessalonians, uh, an exhortation to greater faithfulness in all areas uh, to abound in faithfulness. But the first area that he comes to, to apply this to, is the issue of sexual purity in verses 3 through 8. So take note then that sexual purity is not something that we arrive at and then quit fighting for. As individuals and as a church, we ought to be striving to abound in this more and more. Always on guard, always seeking for greater purity in our thoughts, in our desires, in our 
actions in all things. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, it's actually, he gives a warning to those who think they're standing firm. If you think that you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. So uh, in all areas, the area we, we think we're doing well in, we are told to be careful lest we fall. It is in that moment we can become weak if we feel like we've arrived and we're okay, we've got this area. There's warnings for us. And so, so it is here in this, this text that purity is not something we can afford to let our guard down about. It's precisely when we think we've arrived and we've got it and we're doing well that we become vulnerable. And so, Paul's urging to, to, uh, to do this more and more, to excel in this more and more, shows that there's room for improvement in this area. So I don't know what it is that you are battling in this area uh, to remain pure. I don't know what the particular struggle is for you, but I know, I do know, that your battle's not over. So long as there's breath in your lungs, your battle in this area is not over. Even if you've been faithful till now, even if you are doing well, praise the Lord, your battle's not over though. And so we need to remain diligent Remain diligent. Never stop pursuing sexual purity. Number two, as we are thinking about living in purity, know for certain, know for certain that sexual purity is God's will for your life. Know this for certain. Let's read verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It doesn't, it doesn't get a lot clearer than that, does it? Uh, we, I mean, people often, you know, want to know what the will of God is for their life. Well, here you go. Here it is unambiguously stated. You don't need to uh, discern a, a voice in your head or writing in the sky or anything of that sort. Just very plainly, the will of God for your life is your sanctification. And he goes on to say that you abstain from sexual immorality. So the word there, uh, sanctification, that is the will of God for your life, uh, it, it means that you are being made holy. It's, it's, uh, it's translated in other places as holiness. So it's the idea then that of being consecrated or set apart unto God. So it means separation from sin and being dedicated then to righteousness, to the Lord. So separation from sin, dedicated to righteousness. That's that's essentially what sanctification is. And so again, most people want to know, when they talk about wanting to know God's will, they want to know his secret will. They want to know uh, things that are not revealed in the Bible. Do I go, do I take that job or do I not take that job? And we read the Bible and there's not an answer um, as to exact answer about that question. And we, we're not told. The reality is we, we are not told in the Bible to search that out. We're not told to try to find God's secret will before we make a decision one way or the other. But, what, but that doesn't mean we're left completely in the dark with no idea what the Lord desires of us. So God has given us things that we are to focus on which are his will for us. It's commonly referred to as his revealed will. 
His revealed will are the things we know that he has revealed to us that he desires for us. And, and so we know here in this case that it's his will for us to be abstaining from sexual immorality. Quite clearly, that is his will for us. In, verse, in chapter 5, verse 18, uh, we're told again, he uses the same, similar phrase, we're told that giving thanks in all circumstances is God's will for our lives. Giving thanks in all circumstances is his will for our lives. So you, you might wonder whether to take job X or job Y, and, and we don't know necessarily exactly what God would want you to do. He hasn't revealed that to you. But we do know what God's will for your life is if we look and find his revealed will. We would know that whatever job you take, uh, you ought to be pursuing holiness and righteousness. And uh, in these cases, as we're looking at today, uh, sexual purity is God's will for your life. It's his desire. And so there's other places where we find um, commands in Scripture uh, that tell us that reveal God's will for our lives, that we ought to be loving one another. We've talked about lots of these things. There's, lot, there's lots of, of uh, specific things that the Lord has revealed that is, are his will for us and his revealed will. But the specific thing here um, that he, he mentions is sexual purity. <clears throat> One of the lies that it has been around since the garden, a lie that's been around since Adam and Eve, is that God is holding out on us. That his rules, his laws, his revealed will, uh, is ro- these things are robbing us of something greater. So in the garden, Adam and Eve, the Lord says, God says, do not eat of the fruit of this one tree. Uh, they were tempted into believing that God's command to not eat of the fruit of that tree was not something that came from his goodness, but was actually God holding out on them. Do you recall this? The, the, the temptation is, oh no, he knows that if you eat that, you're going to become like him. So that temptation is, that rule, that command God's given you, that is not for your good. That's for God's good. He's holding out on you. You will really experience freedom and greatness and God-likeness if you rebel, if you uh, eat the fruit of that tree. So the, the father of lies convinced Adam and Eve that God wasn't good, that his rule for them, his will for them, was actually harming them, was keeping them from flourishing. And this lie is, in effect, everywhere today. It's very common to view the commands of the Bible as restricting our joy, as keeping us from freedom, keeping us from flourishing. They're antiquated. They're old-fashioned. And nowhere is it more evident today, I I don't think, than in the area of sexuality. Um, A traditional biblical ethic in this area is viewed as completely backwards and anti-human flourishing. God, whoever wrote this book, they would say, that is, that is in the way of human flourishing. And it's much the same thing as has been happening since Adam and Eve. Our culture is in full flight, full flight and rebellion on this. From assaults on God's design of male and female to the the wholesale pursuit of sexual pleasure that is slowly eroding any boundaries at all in this area, the Bible's teaching on this matter is seen as oppression 
from an evil God who would deny human beings pleasure and joy. And of course, some laws, some of God's revealed will is restrictive. Certainly that is the case as sex is to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the boundary of marriage. These, that's restrictive, but that is for our good. And we can take God's word for that or not. And we can take our culture's word for it. And so when, when we engage in sexual sin of whatever stripe, we, it's possible we're buying this same lie that God is somehow withholding from me, that I need this thing in order to be satisfied. And that is, that is a lie. God is faithful. God is good. His laws and commands are good. He withholds no good thing from His people. And so when He gives us guidelines for how sex is to operate in, in where it is good and in which ways it is bad, we, we need to align our thinking with the reality of what Scripture presents. And so we need to be convinced and know for sure and remind ourselves and preach to ourselves that sexual purity is God's will for your life, and it's a good thing that it is. It is a good thing from a good God. Number three, Purity involves engaging in battle. Purity involves engaging in battle. We don't slip into this as we don't slip into any sort of sanctification. So uh, let's keep reading um, chapter or verse 3. Let's read the second half of verse 3, or just all of verse 3, sorry. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So implicit in this description of purity is the command to, pers to pursue this. That's why he's... He, he's, he's bringing this up. As he talks about abstaining, it's, it's, he wants us to pursue this. right? He, remember, he's asking and urging us to continue even more in faithfulness in this area. And so the, the first thing he, he talks about here is as that part of this, that, uh, about this battle is that it involves abstaining from sexual immorality. Abstaining from it. Uh, so um, th this is a, a general statement to keep away from it, to flee from it, to remove yourself from it, to take no part in it. Elsewhere in Ephesians 5, it talks about how sexual immorality ought not even to be named among you. Okay, we're to, to refrain from it, abstain from it. Uh, the word here for translated as sexual immorality is pornea, and it's the general term that refers to it can cover all types of sexual perversion. So it include, includes adultery, it would include fornication, it would include uh, prostitution, it would include homosexuality, it would include lust, 
which I think is clear in the, in the following verses. And Jesus makes it clear uh, when he talks about looking at a woman with lust is to commit adultery in the heart. So we are to flee this, to abstain from it, to have no part in it. And so this, this is going to require, this requires, again, diligence. It requires constant battle for greater faithfulness in this area. Uh, Paul then continues uh, to, um, to exhort us to have self-control. He says to know how to control their bodies in holiness and in honor. That's in verse 4. So there's, there's some debate on what the word body means there. Um, if you look at uh, your Bible, might have a footnote giving you a couple of options for what that might mean. Um, some think it might refer to a wife, so it's talking about um, how we are to take a, a wife in holiness and in honor, and that's to uh, help safeguard against uh, immorality. Um, but I think body, as the ESV renders it, uh, or vessel are, are, are good options. Paul doesn't use this word um, for wife anywhere else. Uh, it's not in the Bible used that way. And so it would be, there's much more obvious and better words Paul could use if he meant wife. Um, so likely it is, it is body. And that, that Paul here is specifically exhorting the Thessalonians to control their body, particularly the area of their body related to sexuality. And he's saying to, to control the body in holiness and in honor. So our bodies belong to the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 talks about how we are not our own. We are purchased with a price by Christ. And so we are to honor, to glorify God in our bodies. It talks about how we are temples of the Lord and Often, most often, I hear that verse applied to, like, to eating healthy or exercising and taking care of your bodies were temples. And I think that's a valid implication, but 1 Corinthians 6 is actually talking about this issue of sexual immorality. We're to honor God with our bodies in this, in this way. That's what we are called to And then Paul contrasts this back here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He contrasts this self-control with how the Gentiles behave. He says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Not in the passion of lust. That phrase, it can be a, a general uh, lustfulness. It can be a little more broad than just you know, sexual immorality, but... Uh, it, it, can be, it can be the pursuit of whatever the eyes desire. I see something, I want it, I go after it. It, it, can, be, it can be more general. But clearly here, uh, in its context, we know it's talking about lust. And, um, and he's, he's showing here that the people who do not know God, the Gentiles who do not know God, they're the ones who, who their life is characterized by just going from one craving to another. Their eyes see that, they want that, they pursue that. Whatever that thing is. And when they're done with that, they find something else and they go for that. And they just, they live by this uh, desire of the eyes, desire of the flesh, passion of lust. But this is not the way Christians are to live. Paul calls us here to self-control, not like those who do not know God and who simply give in to their various lustful passions. And so the, the, the battle for purity involves 
developing and and working on self-control, learning to say no to your various lustful passions. Um, Paul continues in verse 6 to tell the Thessalonians not to wrong their brothers in this way, in this matter, in the matter of uh, immorality. And this is likely coming from an understanding of the fact that, that this sin uh, affects other people around us. So obviously, if Paul's writing the church, if two people in the church commit adultery together, um, that's wronging somebody. Somebody's wife, that's somebody's husband. There's committing wrong against one another. And Paul's saying, do not do this. Uh, do not wrong your spouse. Do not wrong other people. And so I th- I, from that, I would say I think part of our battle then uh, against um, immorality is learning to love others and understanding that purity in this matter, in this area, is a way of loving other people. So I think it's, it should be, I hope, clear that engaging in adultery would not be loving, <laughs> a loving act to the spouse who's being cheated on. So I think learning to love other people well is part of the battle. And even those who are not within the church, um, how, how can we love the scandalous men and women out there? Uh, we can do that by not giving in to lust, but viewing them as what they are, image bearers of God who are lost, completely lost, and in need of salvation. That's, that's, what, that's who people are outside of the church, and that's how we need to try to view them and try to love them through that lens, not objectify them in our minds or in any other way. And then within the church, we have brothers and sisters in here, and to, learning to view each other in that light, to view each other as brothers and sisters and love each other as siblings with God as our Father. So verse 6 ends with a warning, and we'll come back to that in just, in just a moment. Um, but walking in purity involves engaging in this battle. Number four, as you strive for purity, remember your identity in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. So verse seven says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So Paul grounds his argument to pursue purity, the reason to pursue purity in who the believers are in Christ, who we are in Christ. And when he mentions, when he says that God called them, God has not called us for impurity. When you see that word calling, it's a reference to their salvation, that when God saved them, sovereignly called them out of darkness. Uh, he, he did not do this for the purpose of releasing us to impurity. And so that, that calling is, is God sovereignly drawing them out. Uh, you can, Romans 8, 28, 1 Corinthians 1, 9 are, are places you can go to see, to see how that language is used throughout the Bible as, as talking about salvation. So they're not saved, they're not called for the purpose of impurity, but are, but are saved, called in holiness. So Christian morality is, is linked to Christian identity, to who we are as Christians, as believers. Uh, Christians are often throughout the Bible referred to as saints. 
because we are declared righteous by God when we believe in Jesus. And we are continually being made more like God through this process of sanctification. And last week we saw more of the, uh, the emphasis was on God's doing in our sanctification, that God is sovereignly bringing people along. That's why Paul's praying for God to do this work in the, in the Thessalonians. But we're also seeing that that doesn't mean Paul doesn't find it at odds with saying that we also ought to pursue holiness as well. Um, for Paul, those things are not competing with each other. God's going to God sovereignly saves and will preserve his people, and we're called to pursuit of holiness. And we are called to this pursuit because of who we are. Declared righteous by God upon salvation, upon believing by means of having Christ's perfect righteousness imputed or accredited, applied to your account. And so when a, when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they are declared righteous. They're declared holy. That's who we are. That is our identity. That's who we will be when Christ returns. That is a gift in God's grace that is received by faith through no effort, no work of our own. And yet here we have Christians being called to battle sin, being called to pursue holiness until the end when Christ returns and we are completely perfected in every way. And so all of this salvation is, is given by God's grace as a gift through faith. And so what we are called to here when it comes to this issue of sexual purity is to live in a way that is consistent with who we are in Christ. We are redeemed sinners, called saints, declared holy in God's eyes. We are called to live consistent with what we will be in the end, perfected in every way. We are called to live in a way that is consistent with God's character, the God who called us, who is himself holy. God's people throughout the Bible have always been called to holiness. Um, this, is, this is seen in the Old Testament. It's seen in the New Testament as well. We won't go through uh, these verses, but um, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, um, God, the Lord, as, as the, he's, he's established the nation of Israel and created a covenant with them, he tells them to consecrate themselves he says, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. They were called by a holy God to holiness. Leviticus 19, 2, same, same thing. Uh, Moses is to tell the people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. In the New Testament, Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 1, 14 and 16. He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, he quotes Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. In Romans 6, 12 to 14, we're, we're called not to present our members, our bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but to present ourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. So we're to walk in holiness based on who we are in Christ, based on our being united to Christ in faith. That's who we are now, so we are to live in a way that is consistent with that. 
2 Corinthians 7, 1. Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And these verses come after quoting Old Testament passages about Israel being called to be separate from other nations, separate from the sin, specifically of the nations around them. So the idea is that as a Christian, you belong to God now. You are His, and He is holy. And He calls people then to reflect this. So as you battle for purity, you're called to do this knowing your identity in Christ. If you have repented of your sin, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you belong to a God who called you in holiness. He's declared you holy, on the basis of Jesus' righteousness applied to you, and on the basis of Christ paying the penalty for your sins, rising from the dead, he is in the process of making you reflect this justification, reflect this declaration, which one day he's going to bring to completion. We sang about it. He who washed us with his blood soon will bring us home to God. He's going to continue and finish that process in it. So we're called now to engage in the battle uh, out of this new identity, living out of this. And, and it also, uh, as we'll see in a minute, he, he, he gives your sp- his spirit as well to you to aid you in this battle. And so it can feel sometimes like a losing battle, whether it's the issue of, of purity or any other sin that we find difficult. It can feel at times like a losing battle, but that's part of what the life of faith we're called to is to keep setting our eyes on the end, to keep repenting of our sin, to keep declaring over and over our only hope is Christ, and to keep pursuing holiness in all areas. And to rest to rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That when you've failed again, to once again come back to that place of my only hope again today in this moment is that Christ Jesus died to save sinners. And that's what I am. And I've I've proved it again that I need Jesus and my only hope is that he would be gracious and merciful to me, a sinner. So I think this will help keep us from despair as we remember who we are in Jesus Christ as we battle sin. But it will also help you keep from taking sin lightly. The God who calls us is holy. He calls us in holiness. Jesus died for our unholiness and our impurity. And so that that should also keep us, you know, we ought to rest in Jesus, but it also keeps us from taking our sin lightly. It, It ought to anyway. To realize that this, this is why Christ had to die. And so remember who you are in Christ. Uh, battle for purity from that place. From knowing you are belonging to Christ by nature of believing in him and repenting of your sin. That your only hope is his righteousness applied to you. And battle from there. And the final thing I want to point out is as you battle for purity, be warned, be warned that eternity is at stake. Paul includes warnings in this passage. So verse 6 again, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord, that's Jesus, is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
And then verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If you are here and you are disregarding what the Bible says about sexual immorality, you are disregarding God himself. And Paul says the Lord Jesus himself is an avenger in this matter. Avenger. The the picture is one coming to rectify wrongs, to bring about justice, to implement justice. The Lord Jesus is an avenger in these things. So Paul hangs this warning out there for all who would disregard the Lord's teachings on sexuality. And it's not just here. Uh, other places as well. One, one place, Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Sin is just not something that we are to toy with. Jesus used an extreme uh, statement to say, uh, to to make this point. So he, remember, he he talks about how uh, better to gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin or chop off your hand if it causes you to sin, better to enter heaven with one eye or one hand than to be thrown in hell with two hands or two eyes. In other words, don't let anything get in your way of repenting of sin. Do everything you can. So if your phone is a problem for you, get rid of it. It's not worth having it. If if your computer is the problem, if it's somebody you work with, get a different job. Better to enter heaven having used a flip phone your whole life Better to enter heaven not having the cable TV package ever. Better to have given up on your ideal job because there was temptation there and enter heaven than to possess all these things and wind up in hell. The rich young ruler didn't follow Jesus because he, he, he loved his riches more in the end. Don't be a similar fool and refuse Jesus because you love sexual pleasure more in a way that is contrary to his word. Ultimately, ultimately, this sin, like all others, is a heart issue. So taking drastic measures, like getting rid of your computer, um, those things are helpful because they, they can give you Uh, space. They can provide you with space to then deal with your heart. It removes some of the immediate temptation um, so that you can get into the Word, you can spend time in prayer, you can seek help, and our hearts tend to change slowly. Just simply cutting our cable might be wise, but it's not going to fix our heart issue right away. But these things can help remove some temptation to then be praying through this issue and working through these issues. That, that's the value of these of drastic measures. Some, some, people, some people will object to, to drastic measures. 
so, so you know, even as I say, I mean, I'm, I'm not joking. It, it, get rid of your computer if you have to, or your phone. Trade it in. Get rid of it if you have to. Uh, if that is just the perpetually causing you to stumble, get rid of it. And, and in, in response to some, uh, such an objection, um, some, some people respond to that with an objection. Like, I can't possibly get, you know, function without it. And, and that, there might be truth at your uh, job or something like that. Maybe you need a different job. Maybe you just need other accountability with those items. But in response to someone objecting to taking such drastic measures, uh, one of my former pastors in Louisville said this, he said, show me a man who has his limits on what he's willing to do to fight sin, and I will show you a man who's not serious about fighting sin. Show me a man or woman who has his limits on what he's willing to do to fight sin, and I'll show you somebody who's not serious about fighting sin. There ought not to be limitations on what we're willing to do to battle our sins. And so if you are here and you recognize this is a serious struggle for you, Whatever form of immorality you're, you're facing, I, I would encourage you, re- repent of it. But tell somebody. Tell somebody. Tell, talk to me. Talk to one of their elders. Someone else in this church you trust. Let us help you find um, accountability. Someone who is experiencing victory in this area, who is able to help you, who's available day or night to help you when you need it. We will find that person for you to help you out, to help walk you through this struggle. Don't just say, well, this is going to be the way it is, because there's a severe warning here for you, for us. So do not disregard this word, this call to sexual purity, because if you do, you'll be rejecting God himself, which brings with it fear of judgment. Now, Sexual immorality is the result of the fall. And we are all sinful. We are all perverse. We all have our different areas. And I know that this area is something that some here have experienced a great deal of shame over. And probably we all have to some extent. And the only hope for all of us is that Jesus died to save sinners. And whether this is our struggle or has been our struggle or was our struggle in the past or the thing that we feel great shame about, or if it's another area of sin in our lives that we have struggled with and we feel great shame about, the only hope we all have is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That is our hope. And this this message primarily is not to bring about extra shame for sins we've repented of in the past. That's not the purpose here. Again, the purpose is as we look forward to pursue purity more and more, to continue this battle, not to feel bad about things that happened in the past, though, though that, you know, that comes up as we, you know, we, we remember our past. But again, we are called to simply acknowledge our sin, repent of it, and place our faith in Christ, and remember and rejoice in the fact that he died to save sinners. And that is our only chance, our only hope. And so, if you realize that your heart has not been changed, um, that your religion has been outward, 
and perhaps um, on this particular issue has been the issue you've struggled with and you've been able to keep it inward until now um, and you've never really had a change of heart, then you need to call out to the Lord for mercy. You need to call out to the Lord for grace, that he would visit you and bring about a change in your heart. The call is to repent, to believe the gospel. And if you are a believer, you've repented, you've trusted him, the call is to continue to strive for purity, to continue to repent when we know we failed, confess our sins, and look to Jesus. And remember who we are in him. He is truly our only hope yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. Let's pray. Father, we... We are all sinful people. We, we don't... If we are all honest before you, we can all, with Paul, recognize that we are all the chief of sinners. If our hearts were laid bare and were an open book to everyone around us, we would all be equally exposed as sinners. And the reality is you know those things. And yet, and yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You sent Jesus to die for sinners. And for all who repent and believe in him, you have said we will be forgiven and made right, declared holy, which is remarkable considering how filthy we are. Lord, I pray specifically in this area of sexual purity that you would indeed purify us, that you would help us to pursue this more and more, that we would abound in fruitfulness in this area more and more. God, we praise you for the victory you've given to people in this room. And help us to not rest on this, but to keep pursuing you. Help us to bring our shame to you and to trust that you've paid for it. May we rejoice together in your goodness and in your salvation. Thank you that there is forgiveness for our sins. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.